This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. The title drop video for my upcoming novel, Only the Dead, can be seen on my YouTube channel, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and it is available for pre-order now. My guest today is Gad Sad. You may have heard him on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast where he has been a guest seven times. He is a professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal. He's an evolutionary behavioral scientist, and he specializes in research utilizing evolutionary psychology, understand marketing and consumer behavior. Fascinating guy, incredible history. We talk about that here in the podcast. He is the author of multiple books to include his latest right here, The Parasitic Mind. And now, without further ado, Gadsad. Hi guys, how are you? Hey, there he is. How are you, sir? How are you? I'm really sorry about having to reschedule oh. it by a few hours because I was in New York actually doing a, another show and it was delayed. And so oh. we thought, you know, we ha- it'd be safer to do it at four. Yeah, no, no worries at all. I'm just uh, honored that you would take the the time at all. And uh, I, I saw on Twitter earlier, I saw you were, you were delayed traveling. I was, I was half expecting to, to push it an hour or two or a day or two. First, I was delayed uh, for the flight to to board. Then they put they made us wait fifteen minutes in the queue to take off. Then they added another twenty five minutes. So just those three delays are longer than the flight from New York to Montreal. Oh. Then when we got to Montreal, we were delayed for about twenty five minutes for them to get the you know the corridor yeah to the plane. So it, it it was just it was like a comedy of errors. It was oh. unbelievable. That's how it goes sometimes. Were you just in for the day then? Just quick in and out, get get a do one show. I did. Uh, I don't know. Do you know who Greg Gutfeld is? Oh yeah, yeah. You were on that yeah, show. So I, yeah, so I was on his show at uh, last night, and it and it came up after you know we had agreed to do it. So I thought I better push it back because oh. I don't want to sort of be a no show. So I'm I'm glad. So thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. I'm gonna have to go watch that now. I didn't uh, I didn't catch that one, but I'm gonna have to go watch that for sure. But uh, thank you for taking the time today. I sincerely appreciate it. I have the latest book here, uh, oh, Parasitic yeah. Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Um, and I love the title and I've been following your work for a while. Uh, first through Rogan and then just uh, on, on Twitter and through the through the books right here, which I this one right here, uh, The Consuming oh, yes. Instinct. Um, this is fascinating, not just for people who are in marketing, advertising, that sort of thing, but uh, for authors, for people creating characters. Um, and so I, I found this very, this one incredibly interesting. Um, but I love this title because uh, common sense, it seems to be in short supply these days. And if we go back, uh, Karl von Clausewitz, who wrote On War, of course, and George Marshall um, before and during World War II, they both said that the most important attribute of a battlefield leader is common sense. And uh, we seem to be losing that. And this book is a lot about that. And I'm not going to give this one to my daughter. I'm going to get her her own copy uh, of this. And uh, and same thing for, <laughs> for my wife. But uh, for kids in high school, I think this is such an important read because they're getting a lot of these inputs that you talk about here. Um, but before we get to this specifically, uh, Memories of Lebanon, and you talk about that in the in the book here and what an incredible time to to be there and then to leave there and 
1975, you guys moved to, to Canada. Is that right? We did. And actually, uh, not to say it this way, because it, it, Lebanon deals with the fact that we were Lebanese Jews. In about two hours from now, the highest holiday begins for, in Judaism, yep, which Yom is Kippur. Yom Kippur. So, and tomorrow, and I, and frankly, I had complete—I mean, I had completely forgotten to sync my professional obligations with my, uh, you know, religious. Uh, even though I'm not very religious, but I'm, you know, the rituals are important. And so tomorrow, I'm appearing on another show where. Technically, this guarantees that if there is a hell, I'm going to it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because it's it's a it's a day of atonement. It's a day of reflection. It's when you're fasting for 25 hours, complete fast, no water, no drink, no eating, oh, wow. nothing. Uh, you know, you're going to the synagogue, and I'm going to be appearing on a high profile show. So no, that's <laughs> not how you want to be a good Jew. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Exactly, uh, exactly. You make but, concessions where you have to. There you go. But but to answer your question, yeah. So uh, I was born in uh, Lebanon. We were part of the really the last, you know, few hundreds of Lebanese Jews that had steadfastly, you know, refused to leave Lebanon, even though the 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 greater Jewish community in Lebanon had already been dwindled. You know, they had been leaving. Uh, you know, throughout the twentieth century for all sorts of reasons. Some of it was due to to you know, animus between the Arab states and Israel, but you know there is endemic Jew hatred in in the Middle East, even in quote progressive and tolerant and uh, you know uh, pluralistic Lebanon, and so the writing was kind of on the wall. Now, when the civil war started in 1975, it then became you know impossible to stay in Lebanon, and so we went through the first year of the civil war, and then luckily we were able to get out. And then my parents, I, I also discussed this briefly in chapter one of the Parasitic Mind, my parents, even after we emigrated to Canada, uh, after that first year, they kept returning to Lebanon until 1980, uh, because we still had some business interest there. And this is in full-fledged, you know, the brutality of the Lebanese war is really kind of the benchmark of all br brutal wars. And uh, they kept going back to Lebanon uh, until the, the last time that they went was in 1980 when they were kidnapped by Fatah, one of the, you know, the Palestinian militia groups. Uh, and luckily, though, uh, you know, some some people who were looking for them were able to find them after uh, eight days of captivity. And luckily, they hadn't been executed yet. And then after that episode, none of my family members have ever gone back to Lebanon. So it's been now 42 years. Oh wow! Do you have any uh, desire to to go back at some point? I really do, actually. That's it's a great question because one, maybe my only parental regret so far, may it be the only one that I have, uh, has been that my our children uh, have not really uh, been provided with the linguistic richness that my wife and I have. So I speak four languages. Uh, you know, Arabic is my mother tongue, uh, then French, because in Lebanon used to be a French protectorate. And so at the time, most of the, you know, the educated class would, would learn uh, French through the, the French system, if you like. So we learned, of course, Arabic as our mother tongue, French. Then, of course, when I came to Canada, I learned English and also Hebrew by, by virtue of being Jewish and so on. Uh, and, and also having spent some time in Israel and so on. Uh, and my wife speaks 
French and English and Armenian because uh, the, her, her heritage is Lebanese Armenian. Uh, and so her mother tongue more than Arabic, uh, because in Lebanon, a lot of the Armenians would, would live in these enclaves where, you know, you, you could actually get by without speaking too much Arabic, well, not too much. I mean, her parents speak Arabic, but she didn't because she mm. came to Canada when she was uh, two and a half, three years old. So between the two of us, we speak five languages and yet our children only speak French and English. So this is a long winded way to say that I, it had been a dream of mine to, you know, take a visiting professorship at, you know, American University of Beirut, go there for a year or two, mm -hmm. immerse them when they're very young into Arabic so that, you know, because a kid, when they're four, five, six, they will learn perfectly. Whereas if you try to learn Arabic today, good luck. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, or if I were to try to learn uh, Chinese, you know, Mandarin or whatever. And so, so yes, I wish that we could go back. I've been offered uh, many times I've been, you know, invited, you know, in very, you know, high profile venues with protection and the whole thing. Right. And I've never felt that it would ever be, I mean, you know, like a car bomb, there's no way to protect against that. Right. I mean, you, I'm, look who I'm telling this to, right. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. I don't think, so, so, you know, uh, I would love to go back, but I don't think it's quite the time yet. Right. Right. And, and uh, yeah, you don't want those kids speaking in a language or, that only them and your wife understand, and she doesn't want you speaking exactly. to them in a language that just you and them understand. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, hey, that's, that's a solid foundation, though. Two languages for kids. I mean, especially yeah. today with all the distractions, they'll they'll be thanking you for those two uh, yeah. for the rest of their lives. Um, but some of your memories that you talk about uh, in here, and that I've heard you mention uh, before in interviews. Uh, I mean, you were right there on the border of East and West. Beirut, yeah. the Green Line, and yeah. you have memories of places you couldn't go because of sniper fire and- Very and, good, exactly. And those are some of your earliest memories. I mean, you're there from when you're born up to 10, 11 time frame? Yeah, so 11. I, I, so we we came to Montreal, I think, I, I'd have to double check with my parents the date, but I believe it was October 31st, 1975. My birthday is October 13th. So I had just, uh, so I, I was in Lebanon when I was 11 and, you know, within two weeks or maybe two weeks and two days or something like that, we, we had, we had come to, you know, after my birthday, we had come to, to, and the reason why I remember October 31st, because I think, uh, you know, it was just as it was about to turn to November. And when I, one of the main thoughts I had, it was starting to snow, it was getting cold. <laughs> And I, I remember vividly saying, you know, this this place sucks. It's so cold because I've never seen, but better have snowflakes falling in me than snipers blowing yes. my head and, you know, bombs exploding. So I was kind of, for maybe the only time in my life, I was appreciative of the snow. Never since. <laughs> never since. Uh, no. But you've stayed put there. You've, you've stayed in Canada. Uh, oh, that, that's, that's home base. That's a, that's a hurtful topic. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I stayed there. I'll tell you why, because... At first, it was because our both my wife's family and my mm -hmm. family are here, meaning my parents and hers. Mm -hmm. So when I finished my uh, PhD, I, I finished my PhD in 1994, so it's almost 30 years now. Uh, it, it seemed at the time I was single, it seemed to kind of, I had several opportunities, but the best one at the time was an offer that I had from a Montreal university. So I came back, but never thinking that it, you know, I would stay here forever. Yeah. So much so that, you know, pretty early in my career in 2001, 
uh, I took a leave of absence from Montreal, from my from my university, Concordia, and I uh, spent a few years at UC Irvine. And I also did a, a short stint at Dartmouth College and a short stint at my alma mater at Cornell, thinking that hopefully something would turn into a permanent position. Frankly, I was very much focused on going to Southern California because not only did we live there for a few years when I was a visiting professor there, but also I have a brother who's lived there since mm -hmm. 1984. So, you know, it was like a second home to us. And then when we lived there, it truly felt like it was home. We And plus the, the topography of Southern California is yeah. similar to Lebanon. <laughs> the luminosity of the sun is similar to that of Lebanon. So I really felt that this was home. And so I've been living all these years in Montreal, always feeling as though I'm a visitor here <laughs> and any minute now I'm going to leave. Not that I don't love Montreal. It has great, great attributes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, first, the taxes. Number two, the weather are simply, as I get older, I find that they sh they don't deserve to have me here, frankly. Hey, <laughs> I I, put it that the, way. both the, both the weather and the taxes. Uh, exactly. Yeah, both both of those things. Um, I mean, you're, you're the, the some of the stories that you tell in here about the the uh, what was it the a towel person that would come to the house uh, to oh, replace yeah. some sort of a towel, and then uh, he comes to the house in the middle of this civil war, obviously not to replace these towels. Um, the police officer comes uh, eventually, like it's. It's chaos, uh, and for people yeah, that don't yeah. know about the Lebanon Civil War, um, it, it's it's very confusing. There are so many different sides and factions, yeah. and um, but right where you are, I mean, you are in the thick of it, uh, and you guys make it out of there. It's it's absolutely incredible. But then you get to Canada, and there's a story that you tell uh, about. I don't know if it was the first day of class, but where people are introducing themselves, and there's yeah. this the Jew killer. Story. No, that's in Lebanon. That's in Lebanon. Okay. I, I thought you were going to say another story, actually, which I could. Oh, I that could one's say in both. Lebanon. Yeah, both, please. Yeah. Uh, do you want me, though, for the people who may have not uh, read the book yet? Of course, you should immediately remedy that. But uh, do you want me to tell the pomegranate story that, that oh, yeah. you're calling the foul story? Yeah, because that, that, that's wild. I mean, you guys, that could have been it right there. Yeah, well, the reason why actually I am suggesting that I tell that story because it actually the reason why I included that story in the book more than many many other unbelievably harrowing things that I saw in my life there is because it truly is arguably the one that scared me the most. Not only at the moment that it was happening, but retrospectively, when I think back, it's kind of like the sliding door. Uh, movie oh. if you do this or you do yeah. and, and now people will understand what i mean by sliding door in a second because it was literally a question of opening the door or not so uh, just to put people in context about what you meant by the towel boy so it, at the time there used to be a service that you can so you know how when you go let's say to a to a bathroom now you can take a piece of paper to dry your hands but it's a disposable paper right but in the old days it, there used to be an actual roller like a a, a a textile roller that you would go like this and you would dry your hands and then the next person so we had the guy who would change those rollers mm -hmm. in our you know kitchen right. bathroom so our only connection to him was you know once a week or whatever it was he would come and change these and then one night during the middle of you know unbelievably you know, brutal street to street. I mean, you know, you you, you don't want to, you know, put your head out because you'll get blown away. Yeah. Uh, and we get a knock on the door and, you know, 
Usually if there's a knock at the door during the middle of the Lebanese civil war, it's not going to go well. Like it, yeah. nobody's, they're not coming by for tea. Right. So I actually go to the door and I say, you know, who, who is it? And he says, oh, you know, kid, it's so-and-so, you know, I say, open the door. I, I've, I've got a gift for you. Now, if I'm an idiot kid who just opens that door, I don't think, I don't, the, 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 the spider sense doesn't kick in. I, maybe I'm not sitting here with you talking yeah. right now. And so, you know, I say, well, what, what do you, why do you want to, what, you know, why should, so he sort of gets insistent and he goes, yeah. you know, open the door, kid. So then I run and I get my mother and then, you know, she comes and, you know, there's an interaction and so on. And I also tell the, the story of there was a, a man who was at our house who maybe that was one of the first instances where I developed a great disdain for cowardice mm -hmm. because here is this little castrated coward instead of kind of, you know, instead of being Jack Carr, uh, Navy sniper, he was the antithesis of that. In any case, uh, we didn't open the door. And in Lebanon, there was a division of the police. In, I mean, I'll say it in Arabic, and then I'll translate. It's it's in Arabic. It's satash. Satash means sixteen. It's literally the word sixteen, which is like the division of like an internal kind of police, which you almost could guarantee that they would not be fielding any calls because it's not as though they're taking calls while everybody is butchering everybody in the streets of Beirut. Uh -huh. We call them. So imagine what I think of hashtag defund the police. Uh, and so we we call uh, Satash, the, this, this, this police force. They heroically come over. Yeah. So now we open the door. We all come into the kitchen. And uh, the guy says, the, the head of the cop says, well, what are you doing? And so the other guys with some other guys that he brought along. Right. He, he goes, what, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, we just went up to the mountains and we picked some pomegranates. And so we were passing by to give the family, you know, I, I do work for them, you know, whatever. Uh, and so the guy looks and there was there were pomegranates. And so the head cop says to him, you your connection to them is that you change their towel. And in the middle of the civil war right here in this area, you're stopping in the middle of the night with these other guys to give them pomegranates. If I catch you here again, you know, th there'll be trouble. So then the guy, the, the main guy, the guy who changed the towel, uh, says, I'll be back for you. And we left before he came back for us. And even as I say it now, I've said the story many times, I get goosebumps because that really captured the the vagaries of life the vicissitudes yeah. of life right you go this way this happens to you you go that way i opened that door those guys would have probably had a lot of fun with us and then they would have put a bullet in our head so there you go how many kids you i mean how many kids out there opened the door for the that type of a person in that time frame or i mean throughout history obviously but exactly. uh so scary so you have that that's the that, that was the, the the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back and off you guys go and off we go. And now the other stories. So to, just to yeah. close the loop on those, uh, the 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 Jew killer story is the, the kid. It, the, the same, yeah, the kid. Yeah. The, at, and I actually have class photos where I can point Pick to the guy that out. Kid. Oh my gosh! So I can. I, so that guy that's now become famous, although anonymously in my book, I've got a photo of him. Oh, I wow. know which kid it is. You know. Whoa. And I've always thought. I wonder, you know, you kind of have this fantasy of 
the guy hears me on some yeah. show and says, my God, that was me. And then he, yeah. and he writes to me and, you know, and I mean that in, as a redemptive strategy. Mm -hmm. I don't mean it as, you know, right. I'm going to say to him, you're, you're an asshole. And on the contrary, I would sort of say, I, 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 I accept your whatever, right. but anyways, uh, so this was, I, I tell that story because I wanted to contextualize the Jew hatred in the Middle East, not just as, you know, it wasn't just this anomalous thing that made it dangerous for us during the Civil War. Being a Jew in the Middle East, even in progressive, tolerant Lebanon, mm -hmm. came with certain, uh, you know, challenges, of which here is one where the teacher asks us to get up. Uh, this is probably about a year and a half before the civil, so I'm about eight or nine. Yeah. Uh, the teacher says for us to get up and say what you know what we want to be when we grow up, and so you know I want to be a soccer player, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a, a doctor, and then this kid gets up and says, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a Jew killer, and then everybody starts laughing and clapping and so on, and you know there wasn't like you know he was sent to sensitivity training, right? He wasn't. Uh, Right, it's it's uh, a, it, it's normalized. It's okay, right? Everything in Lebanon is about you know bashing the Jews. It's it's raining outside. It's the Jews. Your wife cheated on you. Who put those ideas in her head? It's the Jew, and on and on and on. So I before I tell the other story from after we came to Canada, the other you know uh, very poignant. I mean, there are many poignant stories in that first chapter, but there's one where as we leave Lebanon and uh, we cl clear the airspace of lebanon and the the captain says it my mother puts it's funny that i'm saying this story on the eve of the highest yeah. jewish holiday so here we stand still haters jew haters uh she puts the medallion around me like a like star of david she says now you can wear this and not hide you who you are and that was a very poignant moment uh do you want to interject something or do you want me to skip to the other story? Wait, well, so I was, I was, uh, there's also another part on your way to the airport where you don't have a memory of some of the things yeah. that were happening, which uh, I can identify with, obviously, because of the past experience over the last uh, 20 some years in the in the military. Um, so do you have those holes in your experience in the military where you 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 remember you were at point A, you remember you were at point Z and you have no recollection of what happened in between? Nope, I don't, but I've heard it so many times. Really? It's almost like I do. So it's something that is familiar uh, to me through the traumatic experiences of so many oh people. Oh my God, you gave over me goosebumps. Um, so it's something that, I, that, that stood out to me in this, and you experienced it at such a young age. Uh, most of the people that, that I know are experiencing it between 18 and 40 uh, years old, essentially. Wow. But uh, but it's it's something that, that stood out to me because you have this insane journey from your home essentially to the airport and you don't I, remember it. I, I could actually. So just to for people to kind of get a sense of how there's a complete discontinuous hole, I I could I could tell you that. So the, the guys who actually took us to the airport were PLO militiamen because there was no way for you yeah. to get to the Beirut International Airport because there would be uh, in Arabic you say hajj like a like a checkpoint checkpoints and exactly and 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 the, over there it was all controlled by PLO militia because there were some refugee camps so if they if you, for whatever reason they didn't want you to go through if they wanted to put a bullet in your head then you're gone so you're never mm -hmm. going to make that flight so you really need to make sure that you get the clearance for whichever roadblock you need to clear otherwise you're going to get killed 
And so because of our connections and so on, we had, you know, I guess my, you know, my parents had paid some people who were going to, you know, protect mm -hmm. us and take us to the airport. So when they, and you know, I mean, you may know this because of your, your professional background, but the people who see the stuff with ISIS and so on, I mean, that's the world I grew up in. Yeah. They come over, they're dressed like that. They're fully armed. Now you don't know if they're going to take you to a ditch and put a bullet in your head, but from the perspective of me speaking now as a child at that moment, I remember that the head guy, uh, he kind of stands next to me with his, uh, I think it was a Kleshenkov, and, and you know, I'm looking at it, it's, for me, it's like a beautiful, wow, like a toy, right? Like it's, and he goes, oh, do you wanna, do you wanna hold it, whatever? And I remember, I thought, oh, this is so cool. So then we, we get into the car, and then I remember my father's, I don't know if I put this in the, in the in the book or not but and if it isn't then you're getting some extra uh behind the scenes there we stuff. Go. my my father uh says oh i forgot my money belt uh back in the and in, in the house did, did i say this in i the think book? you do say that, and you don't go back uh, for it right exactly he said now we never knew if i'm not going back because it's too dangerous or i'm not going <laughs> back because <laughs> we're gonna the get money it later belt. yeah <laughs> exactly but it was like we're going yeah and i remember so then so i remember starting the journey and then the next thing i know is you know it's the, the all the airport stuff the you know clearing and and the only reason i found out what happened during that thing is in one of our conversations with my parents many years ago i said how come i don't i, re I don't remember anything and then they're the ones who filled it in for me and said mm -hmm. well this is what was happening and it was basically like the a rambo movie it was as we're going through all the different neighborhoods where they would not be mm. friendly to PLO militia, mm. and you can't clear, you can't go through those neighborhoods. And so they were just shooting and taking fire. And we were like literally hiding at the bottom of the thing. They had the stuff. And I, but I have zero, nothing, not a single recollection of that. Now, just one quick other thing. What, what amazed me about what you said that, you know, other warriors have said that they've had this is because I, I think I was speaking to Rob O'Neill, mm. whom I, I'm guessing, you know, uh, and I was telling him about the, the two nightmares that I had for about 25 years. I, I probably haven't had one in at least 10 years that I can remember, but for many, many years, I was always haunted by, uh, one of two nightmares. Uh, which I talk about in the book. One is the bad guys are coming to get us and then my gun jams or yeah. the bad guys are coming after us and then I, I don't have ammunition anymore. Yep. And as I was telling that story, he did something very similar to what you just said. He goes, oh, that's called the warrior dream. It, it war Warriors always have that dream. And that, which again, it, it's kind of, it, it's very interesting when you know that someone, not that you're happy that someone else experienced it, but it kind of uh, creates this bond with other yeah. people that you say, at least I know that there are other people who know exactly, you know, what, what I was tormented by. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm getting emotional. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, and it feels well, like thank it's, you it's for real. Telling me that. Oh, and, and it feels like they're real. Uh, those dreams quite common. Uh, people in the military uh, and law enforcement uh, get that a lot as well because you're training so much and you're doing these things that are repetitive in nature um and then you have these dreams where you're doing the right things everything that you've trained to do there's a jam tap rack bang but it doesn't go bang you do it again you get rid of that magazine you rack the slide you get another one 
it's not working. Wow. And this thing and that threat is getting closer. Um, it's just quite common. I, I remember my first one actually. It's so it's such a powerful dream. I remember my first one was before I joined the military, uh, but I was training up for it. So I was training uh, quite a bit with firearms and I ha started having those types of dreams. And I haven't had one in a while um, either, but it's quite common for people in, uh, in that, that follow that path. But I, I mean, I think what I had told Rob uh, during our conversation and, you know, not to create a hierarchy of, of torment, but it's one thing for a Navy SEAL to feel helpless. It's another thing for an 11 year old yeah. child who knows that at any given moment, he is going to be executed and I've got zero control over it. Oh. You have agency, you're a Navy SEAL. I'm just a kid who's about to get killed. So, uh, you know, not I'm not trying to create no. competition, but uh, you know, you're trained, you're a warrior, I'm a kid. Yeah, I think it goes back to some of those same uh, I don't know if they call them fears or worries, uh, or that maybe that that uh, protector gene that is in uh, a lot of us, probably in most of it, suppressed in in quite a bit of uh, of society. But that, that that's just there, and so that's your worry that you won't either be there, or you haven't trained enough, you haven't studied enough, you haven't done something that's going to protect this gift of life for you and for those that that you love. So um, yeah, so it does not surprise me at all that uh, that you would have those, but. Oh, yeah, and do you think that that later fed into uh, you wanting to have con control of your schedule and becoming a professor and that sort of a thing to have some of that control that maybe you didn't have back then? I mean, undoubtedly, right? Because uh, as you know, we are a product both of our genes and that interact with our environment. So I, 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 I don't wish to attribute everything to my experiences mm -hmm. because there is the unique constellation of genes that make up who God said is I, I am a fighter uh I, and I, I think I would have been a fighter whether I went through the Lebanese experience or I didn't mm -hmm. uh but but yeah certainly I think the fact that you know I had zero control over whether I lived or died uh would have been something that affected me now I can tell you that uh, on the on the same kind of topic it recently came up and i i haven't shared this uh publicly so this is the first time hearing it and then i want to mention the other story yes, yes. from when we came to just because if a viewer wants to close yes, the parenthesis yes. uh you know I, i've been fortunate in that you know almost every single time i mean literally every single time except one time where people have come up to me and you know i i'm, I'm fortunate enough that you know tons of you know loving people come up to me on the street and so on i've never had a threat and so on although online i've had many many yeah. death threats but never in person and then there was recently one very harrowing situation that wasn't very good and my reaction would have been you know if i'm packing if i'm you know i i feel as though i can protect myself or if i go out i can protect myself whereas in Canada, as you know, uh, you know the the right to self defense is subcontracted to my higher mm. overlords. I have to, and I literally, you know, the police will tell you, "Oh, you know, call nine one one," because if somebody's trying to come and, and knife you, you say, "Please, can you just wait for me to call nine one one and let them respond, and then we you could pick up with you know trying to behead me." Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I I think that. If anything, I'm very much uh, drawn to the ethos of the Second Amendment 
because first, I think it's part of my personality, personal agency. And second, I went through the world of not being able to protect myself. And I, I don't like to feel that way. No, no. Now, uh, all those book royalties, half over half of which go to your government uh, to protect them. They certainly have 24-7 security, hey. 365 days a year. So you're paying for them. Uh, and they may be paying for you, but it's going to be there in an hour, 10 minutes, exactly. 15 minutes, maybe, if you can get to your phone. Yeah, it's not, it's not, that's not, uh, not the best deal going. No, it is. You're exactly right. Uh, so the other story uh, is when we move, so when we get to Montreal, uh, end of October, 1975, I remember the first day that I'm going to class. I mean, literally, as a matter of fact, the street that I where I'm going to go to elementary is probably two kilometers from where I'm sitting right now. So it's quite, quite wow. incredible that it, it's so close to where wow. it all started. And I went to a place called I Iona Elementary uh, School. Uh, and as so we're, we're driving down and I am also sort of kind of ruining how dark it is and miserable and, <laughs> you know, kind of snowflakes and so on. And so we, we get to the to the uh, my, you know, my parents drop me off and I walk into class and, uh, and and after I tell you the story, I'm going to tell you a more recent story that happened that speaks to that day is an amazing story. Uh, so the teacher says, can you uh, introduce yourself to to the class? Now I didn't speak English at at the at the time I I spoke uh, you know French and so I, I said I mean I'll say it in French and then I'll translate you know mon nom est Gad je viens du Liban my name is Gad and I I come from Lebanon so when I said that nobody they're like what the hell and so I said you know Liban Liban and I do like machine gun like mowing people now that story to me was very marking because it's kind of the the transition from mm. my lebanon days to introducing that world to my new friends in, yeah. in montreal about two years ago well now my daughter's in grade eight so this is I, the grade five her grade five end of semester or end of year barbecue party a guy comes up to me whom i remember from elementary school we, we've crossed paths him and his cousins uh he comes up to me he goes because he was there his his uh i think niece or i, I can't remember who it was it wasn't his kid but yeah. someone from his family was in that and he says you know god i re i remember the first day you and so then yeah. he recounts that story and again you know you and i didn't grow up i mean i'm i'm older than you but you and i didn't grow up with 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 these guys right oh. you don't have every minutia the, the only the only thing of this is what's in my memory and the right. deep recess of my memory there is no record of it other mm -hmm. than what's in here right so when someone comes along and says exactly the story you go hey that's that's, that's going it. to be uh -huh. I, I don't think my book had come out yet uh so i i felt like a real bond there because again he was sharing a memory that was so important to me yeah that's amazing that's amazing how these things all eventually connect um, but this life, even up to this point, could be a movie, uh, to say nothing of everything that happens afterward. Uh, at some point, someone should explore uh, making this life a movie. And you could star in the you could star in the, the whatever chapter it is when we when they when they make I was it. Gonna, I was going to say, 
we can't get an actor to play me because who's going to match my good looks? That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, but someone should be thinking about this because it is a uh, it's an incredible story. It's so Thank inspiring. Um, and uh, do you have memories though before, let's say? 1973, 72, 71, 70. Um, was was Lebanon or your memories of it? Was it the really the Paris of the Middle East, that sort of a, a thing in those earlier years? There was, I mean, although the so one of the er, so I'll I'll just mention one negative thing and then I'll I'll talk about some of the Paris stuff that you're alluding to, because that certainly was there. Uh 1970, so I'm five, not quite six yet. Uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the the former uh, president of Egypt, who was a pan-Arabist, meaning that he was trying to unite all of the Arab straight states under sort of one big coalition, you know, to have more more clout. Uh, he passed away, and as always happens in the Middle East, when something bad happens, everybody kind of goes out into these kind of lamentations and these fervors and these protests and manifestations, mm -hmm. and then you start shouting slogans and stuff and of course one of the favorite slogans is you know death to <laughs> jews death to jews and so here i am i'm five almost six uh hiding kind of cowering in the balcony looking as the procession is coming down our street and my parents are saying you know come in and i'm thinking to myself why are they shouting death to jews you know so that so even when i was very young in still the there. paris of the middle east you still had the nastiness mm. Uh, but if you if you want to let so to, to answer your question about sort of the more uh, uh, positive elements of of Lebanon, it was the jet set place. It was where all many movie stars went. It was, uh, you know, well, exactly that the Paris of the Middle East. M you know, my parents also lived that lifestyle in that. And, and I don't think I've ever mentioned that you're, you're getting a lot of hey, first all right this, so. breaking news. Uh, so, my, you know, my my parents had three children very very young my my mother was almost 16 when she got married but that's it's old school lebanon so i mean mm. it's still quite young but not the way you would think about it today it was so she was almost 16 my father was 20 1920 so and then they had their first kid very quickly and then two other kids and then only 10 years later i came along okay. when they were let's say 29 30 and 34 uh, and the reason I mentioned this is because uh, they were they were kind of out of the the diaper phase of their parenting. Got it. So here comes Gad, who's kind of who's an accident. Uh, and actually, in my next book, I talk about some of those stories, which I'll save for the next okay. book. But they're very powerful stories. Uh, and so because they were they had kind of gone through the diaper phase and now they were, they were still young and they were, you know, you know, well-known business people and so on. So they were part of the jet set, you know, hobnobbing with all uh -huh. the influential people in Lebanon. And that's why we have all those connections where people were able to free them when they Got were it. kidnapped by Fatah and so on, because we were, we were very well connected with, with high powered, you know, political people, military people and so on. Yeah. And so, uh, I remember as a very young child uh, bonding with, th this This is totally new stuff here we're doing, where I bonded with Selma. Selma was our uh, living, she's like part of the family. She, she's not biologically part of the family, but I frankly loved her more than I loved my, my parents. 
And when Selma was eight, when I was eight years old, so we were still living in Lebanon, she, uh, she was going to leave because she was now going to get married. She was already, you know, quite old. I mean, she was maybe late 30s, early mm. 40s. Uh, so, you know, from the perspective of the, a child's right. eyes, she was going to be with us forever, but she was going to now go and live her life. Mm. But she had been with us for many years. It was like I lost my mother and mm. it was very, very traumatic. All this to say, I remember always seeing my parents and feeling kind of neglected, to be honest with you, that they were uh, jets, jet setting to the, there was a place called Le Casino du Liban, like the, the Lebanon Casino where all the high rollers would go and the jet setters and right. you know the the 1970s yeah so yes there was it was very much of a party scene it was a beautiful place but you know just like you're healthy until you have a heart attack it's all lovely and fun until the decapitations begin oh geez that's that should be a sentence in the uh in the next book for <laughs> sure and uh i'm gonna read this uh a couple things here but this sentence right here you say I have faced two great wars in my life, the Lebanese Civil War and the war against reason, science, and logic that has been unleashed in the West, especially on North American university campuses. Um, what, what, uh, what was that path between arriving in Canada and then becoming a professor of marketing, evolutionary and behavioral psychologist, scientist, writing these books, having this, uh, this presence now uh, online uh, and, 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 and really influencing and giving hope. That's what I love about this as well, is uh, it's something that my wife and I struggle with uh, when we sit down at the end of the day and have a glass of wine, is thinking about this future for our children. And uh, right. we have three kids, uh, 17, 14, and 12. And uh, so we think about that at the end of the day. And oftentimes it's not the most hopeful of uh, perspectives on the future. But you have, you offer that in here. You give solutions in here, uh, hope, optimism, and I love that. But what was that uh, that road from this kid from Lebanon that shows up in Montreal and then all of a sudden is, and not all of a sudden, but goes on this journey to explore right. these topics uh, and really lead this fight against people that are essentially murdering truth, I think is uh, is the way it's been exactly. put before. So yeah, thank what's you. that That's path like? Well, I should I should mention first that I, I really do appreciate the fact that you you pointed to the fact that I offer the optimism and the hope because I I did that very very willfully right because I didn't want to be right I mean imagine if you have a physician and you go see him and he goes hey Jack you've got a this disease and you go okay doc he goes I don't know I'm just you've got a disease right f off. Right. I mean, that that wouldn't be a very good uh, hopeful <laughs> and so i wanted to make sure that if i'm going to trace the trajectory of all of these idea pathogens mm -hmm. that i offer you some sort of inoculation some mind vaccine some you know calls to action and so i very much wanted to make sure that i did that mm -hmm. so thank you for pointing that out uh, so yeah so about the trajectory i i guess the first time that i said okay we've got a fight on our hands is when I began getting exposed to postmodernism, mm -hmm. and this is why I call this the the uh, the granddaddy of all idea pathogens, mm -hmm. you know, postmodernism purports that there are no objective truths. Uh, everything is shackled by personal biases, by subjectivity, by you know relativity. Uh, not in the physics sense, in the in the you know who are we? Right, it's my truth. There is no truth, capital T, and. Uh, 
I first saw this as a doctoral student where my eventual doctoral supervisor was assigning those papers critically. And so I was looking at this and saying, what the hell is this garbage? It's absolute nonsense, right? Uh, so as a doctoral student, so my, because my original tr training was in mathematics and computer science. Mm. So that's, you know, very, very technical, you know, even in, then I did an MBA, I did a mini thesis in operations research, which is an applied mathematics field. So I, when I went to Cornell to do my, I did my MS and PhD there, it was really to be a mathematical modeler. Wow. I was going, to, I was going to apply mathematics to, to model you know, economic behavior and, and, you know, consumer choice and so on. And it's only through the, you know, serendipitous meeting with my eventual doctoral supervisor who himself was trained as a psychologist, you know, so he had, you know, he, he, he got his PhD in psychology at the university of Michigan before eventually he, he was housed in a business school. His original, uh, appointments were in psychology. So he suggested, he said, you know, why don't you take, uh a this advanced social psychology course uh, in my first semester as a phd student uh, because he also saw that i had a lot of interest in behavioral science and so on and it's in that course that the professor whom i love to always say his name because i always want to give him the kudos for having you know shaped my eventual trajectory uh he assigned about halfway through the course a book called homicide which was written by two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology Martin Daly and Margot Wilson, a husband and wife team. Margot Wilson has regrettably uh, passed away. And in that book, they demonstrate that there are certain patterns of criminality that happen across time and across place in exactly the same way, precisely because they are driven by an evolutionary calculus. Mm. So when I saw the, the explanatory power and the, the, the parsimony the, and the theoretical coherence of how beautiful the evolutionary explanations were, I had my eureka moment. I said, okay, great. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take this evolutionary framework and apply it. I mean, in the behavioral sciences in general and in consumer behavior in particular, hence that's why I'm housed in a marketing department because <laughs> typically it's marketing professors who study consumer psychology. Okay. And so, so, so all that was fine. But so first I was exposed to postmodernism. I said, uh-oh. You know, Houston, we have a problem. What the hell is this garbage? Then I started really seeing the the attack, the murder on truth before I then warned about it spreading to the culture wars as mm -hmm. it eventually did. Not to say I told you so, but I told you so. Uh, as I saw it, I saw the reticence that social scientists had in accepting that human behavior can be shaped by biology and by evolutionary forces. I mean, it was literally a form of insanity. That's why one of the idea pathogens that I talk about is what I call biophobia, fear of using biology to explain human affairs. So it's okay to explain evolutionary theory to explain the behavior of 1,999,999 species, but there is this one species called Homo sapiens that somehow floats outside of biological imperatives. Well, it's insane, right? And so that's really where where the parasitic mind first started being written in my head because i was like how could otherwise very intelligent people i mean right like these social scientists are not you know walking morons they're not babbling idiots they're educated they're well trained they they know their stuff but yet somehow they were parasitized mm -hmm. and so that's where i first saw it 
And then, of course, eventually these dreadful ideas started spreading everywhere and hence, you know, the woke realities that you now see. But I had been warning about these things for a very, very long time. And then eventually I said, you know what, I'm going to put it all together into the parasitic mind. And that's how the book was born. No, it's fantastic. You can go online, you can go to your YouTube channel and check out, you know, you're talking about these different things, uh, go through Twitter, uh, look at different uh, magazine articles that uh, that you've written. But when, um, when we talk about uh, pathogens, uh, I'm going to read this for people that might not be uh, familiar with exactly what we're, we're talking about and think it might be in a uh, a biological infection or something like that. So here we go. The central focus of this book is to explore another set of pathogens that are potentially as dangerous to the human condition, parasitic pathogens of the human mind. These are composed of thought patterns, belief systems, attitudes, and mindsets that, that paras, paras, parasitize, parasitize one's ability to think properly and accurately. Once these mind viruses take hold of one's neuro, neuro, uh, neuronal circuitry, the afflicted victim loses the ability to reason, logic, and science to navigate the world. Instead, one sinks into an abyss of infinite lunacy, best defined by a <laughs> dogged and proud departure from reality, common sense, and truth. And we see that every single day. And there are a lot of loud voices out there that uh, make people that are just getting up, trying to raise their kids, get them to school, um, uh, put food on the table, roof over the head that uh, make you feel a little bit helpless. Um, but yeah. what you do is lay it out here in such a clear, concise, and, uh, and, and, and you add your humor to it as well. Uh, that's you. in there. Uh, so it makes it very approachable, very readable. Um, so, and, and go back to that hope, but, um, what did you first think about that? Like, this is as a pathogen, like as, yes. a, where, where did that come from? Yeah, that, thank you. Thank you so much for that question. Uh, so I, in the book, I talk about, because I wanted to make a distinction between the neuroparasitological model that I was going to describe, which is going to answer your question, and what many people would have otherwise thought is the mimetic framework that Richard Dawkins made famous. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, in a classic book in 1976 called The Selfish Gene, he talked about, in the same way that humans can spread genes i mean literally you have children and therefore they share half you know on average half your genes in the same way that genes can propagate we are also a cultural animal and therefore he introduced the term meme which now everybody uses mm -hmm. in the social media sense but originally it was in a much more circumscribed sense that a meme is any packet of information that can spread from one you know one brain to another right so uh if i'm if i'm humming a jingle and you overhear me now you start humming it. Well, that's one mimetic transfer. If you read my book, I'm I'm spreading my memes or memeplexes mm -hmm. onto your brain. But the reason why I thought that that wasn't sufficient for what I was trying to to do in the in the parasitic mind is that memes can 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 have different valence. A meme can be positive, like a a, a fun jingle. It could be neutral. It could be negative, right? A, an urban legend that spreads that destroys mm -hmm. the the reputation of a company could be a meme that spreads. But what I wanted is a framework that doesn't spread akin necessarily to a virus, but that hijacks the neuronal circuitry, as in the quote that you, you, you so kindly read, that hijacks your neuronal circuitry, leading you, I mean, as I said, to the abyss of infinite lunacy. And so there what I did, so now I come to the question of how did I come up with it, 
So one of the things that evolutionists and evolution psychologists do when they're trying to explain some behavior is they often use what's called comparative psychology, whereby you look at other animal behavior to draw parallels, right? So for example, a homologous trait that we have with cats is that we have similar structure in our forearms. Well, that trait is homologous, meaning that if we go back enough in the evolutionary tree with cats, we have a common ancestor. Now, mm. of course, chimps, will. we wouldn't have to go as far back in the evolutionary tree to find a common ancestor, right? And so I started scouring through the animal literature to say, you know, what, what's, what would be the right framework to look for animal behavior where one animal, of course, or organism parasitizes, causes another organism to behave maladaptively to suit the interests of the parasite. And of course, voila, neuroparasitology is that field. Parasitology is simply the study of parasites. So a, a, a tapeworm is a parasite, but it, it's going to go to your intestinal tract. A neuroparasite is one that's specifically looking to go to its brain, to, to its host's brain, altering its behavior to suit its selfish interests. So for mm -hmm. example, a cricket that might otherwise despise water, once it is parasitized by a particular parasite, will happily jump to its death in, into, into, into a pond because that serves the reproductive interest of the parasite that has wow. hijacked its brain. And so to me, it was, I got it. I'm going to use that metaphor. I'm going to use the neuroparasitological metaphor to argue that in the same way that actual brain worms can cause great distress to, a, to an animal, even to its death, humans can be parasitized by another class of parasites, and hence I call them idea pathogens. So that was the intellectual trajectory of how I came up with the framework. It's absolutely incredible. Why do you think that a lot of these idea pathogens uh, are spawned on college campuses from professors? Why is that? <laughs> well, why does that seem to be the spawning ground? Yes. So I, I exactly sought to. I mean, for, well, thank. I mean, you've done such an amazing job in terms of preparing for this interview. So I really appreciate it. you. You definitely show that you've you've read the material, and so thank you for that. Of course. Uh, so at one point, I exactly try to answer your question in the following way. So if if you look at if you're an oncologist and you study cancer, okay, well, you know, uh, lung cancer behaves differently than a melanoma, which behaves differently than kidney cancer. But if we try to find some commonality across all cancers, we could at least say the following, perhaps banal statement: What all cancers share is the unchecked cell division, and so that that's the definition of cancer. So even though it then behaves in completely different ways, even though the way that you intervene to try to help the patient might be different for different cancers, we at least know that there is this one common element. So, so that's the analogy to, mm. I wanted to answer what is common to all of these idea pathogens. And in answering that, it's going to answer your more fundamental question of a why, why, is it, why does it get spawned in, within the university ecosystem? Well, I argued that all of those idea pathogens, so whether it be postmodernism or transgender activism or militant feminism or biophobia or social constructivism, everything is due to a social construction. There are no innate biological imperatives. Michael Jordan had no innate better ability to become an NBA guy who could jump 40 feet in the air than 
it's only because mama didn't hug Jack enough or maybe hugged him too much that he it didn't. So everything is due to social construction, right? So what is common to all these? Well, number one is they all free us from the pesky shackles of reality, right? Reality is constraining, right? I don't want to hear about there is a truth with a capital T. There's only my truth. That liberates me. I don't want to be constrained by the my actual genitalia. I can just put a trans prefix, it changes. I don't want to be constrained by the fact that my child may not have the athletic ability of Lionel Messi. That's that's not a very hopeful message. It's a lot more hopeful to simply know that if I feed him enough Big Macs or not enough Big Macs or I hug him enough or I put him in the right temperature, there is some combination of socialization factors that will ensure that my son will be the next Isaac Newton, the next Michael Jordan. That's hopeful. So that's on one level. On another level, so why? where do academics come in? So academics oftentimes live in utopian worlds fully decoupled from the consequences of their theories, right? So what happens? If, for example, I want to create a world where people don't misuse evolutionary theory. So, so one of the reasons why people hate evolutionary theory is because all kinds of really nasty folks have misappropriated evolutionary theory. So the Nazis came along and said, hey, there's a natural struggle between the races. We're superior, we're the Aryans. Sorry, Jews, you lose out. Hey, it's a natural struggle, you lose. It's Darwinian, what's wrong with killing you? That's just Darwin. And of course, it's got nothing to do with Darwin, but yet we are taking this evolutionary principle and we are misappropriating it to our you know, genocidal goals, right? So now imagine a social scientist comes along and goes, okay, well, you know, I live in my ivory tower. What if we were to construct a new set of edifices of human knowledge whereby biology ceases to matter because then that could protect us against you know the the negative consequences of misapplying biological theories for example eugenicists have misapplied evolutionary theory right hey what's wrong with sterilizing uh, gay people we don't want the gay gene to spread so let's sterilize them that used to happen in eugenics right so all kinds of real cretinous folks were misusing evolutionary theory so here comes this the the saviors on their white horses called you know uh, utopian academics who are going to create a new world order whereby we can be protected from these nefarious downstream consequences of these ideas. This is why in the book I then say I draw a distinction between deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics. Deontological ethics are absolute statements that you never violate, right? So for example, if I were to say you, you should never lie. That would be a deontological statement. If I say, well, it's okay to lie if you're trying to spare someone's feelings, that would be a consequentialist statement. Now, for many things in life, it makes perfect sense for us to be consequentialist. When it comes to pursuing and defending truth, we should put on our deontological hats. And so to answer your question in a very academic way, but I, I hope you agree that I needed to, to do it, academics started off with a noble goal where they are trying to you know achieve some you know truly laudable objective but in the pursuit of that objective if collateral damage as the warrior you are in in the in in the pursuit of that noble goal if we have to at times murder and rape truth those consequences are okay for the higher laudable goal right so militant feminists 
when they first came along and said equity feminism, well, you and I could sign up for that because that basically says there should be no institutional, you know, misogyny or sexism. Men shouldn't be paid more than women. Well, I would say, yeah, okay, I'm, sign me up. I'm an equity feminist. But then feminists went completely berserk where they said in the pursuit of the eradication of the sexist status quo, we now have to argue that men and, when, men and women are indistinguishable from each other. Therefore, you, that's why you get the biophobia pathogen, right? Be afraid of arguing that there are innate biological differences between men and women. Well, the average three-day-old three pigeon knows that that's true, but yet we, we develop entire disciplines where to say that there are innate sex differences would get you fired. It's insane. And so, so to, again, to summarize the, the answer to your question, it starts off with a noble goal, and then we end up murdering and raping truth in the pursuit of that noble goal. That's why it's the universities that start off with all this bullshit. And uh, they've been quite successful over the uh, over the decades, uh, as, as anyone who's uh, paying attention knows. Um, and we're, we're creeping up on an hour, but uh, I, have, I have so many more questions for you, but I want to be respectful of your time. Um, Thank you, sir. But uh, we can go if you want to go a few extra minutes. That's okay. Extra minutes. All right. Uh, when we talk about intellectual terrorism as it pertains to postmodernism, um, and uh, and you put it in those terms, I think that's a great way for people to to I mean, wake up to the fact that these things are out there. They are pathogens. They're creeping in, uh, not just creeping in. In many cases, being forced in. Uh, and you talk about that uh, as well, being afraid to speak up because of being canceled and this sort of a thing. Um, when you talk about intellectual terrorism, when, when did you first start thinking about it in those terms? In those, because that's a, that's a serious way to put uh, to put it. Yeah. So, uh, and I actually draw the, the the analogy between you know I always say the nine eleven hijackers flew planes onto you know buildings. Uh, postmodernists are intellectual terrorists in that they fly planes of bullshit onto our edifices of reason, <laughs> right? And, and so so that's how I originally developed the, the language for that analogy, because it's really, it's a dead end, right? Like when you wake up as a scientist every day, what, what's your goal? You wanna understand a bit more about the world in, in whatever small sphere that you're trying to contribute to the pantheon of human knowledge, you're trying to achieve that laudable goal. If you remove the possibility that there is such a thing as an epistemology of truth, that there is, well, it's called the scientific method, right? If you now argue that there is no such thing, there, there is no such thing. There is no the scientific method. There is indigenous science. There is Afrocentric science. No, there isn't. There is no Lebanese Jewish way of studying evolutionary psychology. There is no Navy SEAL way of studying evolutionary psychology. We could study the psychology of Navy SEALs but they don't operate in an other epistemology outside of the scientific method, right? So you could be an indigenous person who has lived in the, you know, within an ecosystem that allows you to understand the flora and fauna of that ecosystem because you've lived there for 3,000 years. But if we're trying to adjudicate hypotheses within that ecosystem, there is nothing other than the scientific method. We don't do tribal dance and try to connect with our uh ancestral elders in the phantom world mm -hmm. there is no such thing there is only one game in town it's called the scientific method so once you remove that then it is intellectual terrorism because how have we been able to develop the weaponry that the u.s military has it wasn't through postmodernism. how did we build bridges how do we get a 
a a, a flying man-made thing to land on a you know comet mm -hmm. or whatever it was a few years ago that they did that wasn't through postmodernist physics right the, right so there is no value other than the destruction of arguably not arguably the greatest epistemology that the human mind's ever come up with which is called the scientific method hence it is intellectual terrorism there's no other way to put it and of course parents who are suckers enough to spend 70 and 80 thousand dollars a year to send their schools to Vassar College and Oberlin and Wellesley. Now, by the way, I, I, I'm not suggesting that you can't study the humanities. I, I'm not I'm not arguing that there's a hierarchy. You better study neuroscience or you better study, you know, psychology of decision making or physics. Otherwise, you're not a serious person. You could study Shakespeare very seriously. It could be very intellectually enriching. You could study, you know, Sanskrit poetry if you want. So I'm not creating a hierarchy where these fields are, but anything that you do within the intellectual realm has to be coupled to reason, to logic, to the scientific method, to common sense. And if you violate that, then you're an intellectual terrorist. There's no other way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that throughout my uh, whole uh, journey through schools. I was never taught to think logically until very late. And that is only because I came across a professor who took it upon himself to teach us how to think logically. Um, had he not done that, I don't know. I mean, that was a, a, a turning point for sure. Uh, I just wow. gone through math, science, history, fine, just doing like, I love history and I love reading and all, all of that. Uh, but no one ever taught me about thinking logically. And then the history of that and the ancient Greeks. And, and it was, uh, so I, I, my hat is off, forever off to him. Uh, for that. And I was going to read some things in here, but I'm going to instead recommend that everyone else pick up this. The uh, I was going to read the Ostrich Parasitic Syndrome, the <laughs> OPS, which is fantastic. So everybody should get this book so they can uh, so they can read that. Um, obviously, the tax on reason, what you're talking about with virtue signaling um, and uh, junior high, high school, so important. People who have been infected with these pathogens would be probably the best served to pick up this book and read it. Um, the dangers of self-censorship, um, which people do all the time now because of the social media mobs and, and, uh, and they want to make a living and not get canceled and all, all of these, these things. Um, but there's, uh, there's so many, so much great, there, this is just a fantastic book. Um, but I want to end here, wrap it up here with something we talked about earlier. You mentioned security and being on uh, college campuses and, uh, giving speeches and a lot of this, it just looking at it, uh, from the outside in. A lot of some of this, I guess the gas on the fire, I should say, started with some of these people that would come to college campuses that were shouted down, that were, uh, that couldn't give a speech, that couldn't have a debate. Uh, this, the, that's where a lot of this started because a lot of, I think, these, uh, the executive level at these universities caved in many cases. Absolutely. And what did that teach this whole generation of people in that time frame? Let's, let's say 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. It showed them that it worked. And so yeah. now where are they now? Well, they've moved on either in academia or they're in the workforce somewhere, but they've been taught that this council culture shouting down people you disagree with, not engaging in any sort of debate, that it works for them. Um, so exactly a lot of that right. started there. But uh, uh, to, to kind of wrap up here, I wanted to ask about political ideology and how that, Im how that impacts happiness, because I think it goes back into this cancel culture uh, that we're living in right now, but how does your political ideology impact happiness and well-being, especially when you apply it to conservative and not liberal, not classical liberal, but leftist 
ideology, because I think that uh, does play in to uh, the this angry mobs that uh, will shout you down rather than uh, engage in uh, a debate of ideas. Well, it's funny that you asked that question because that's one that I actually cover in my next book, which is forthcoming uh, in 2023, where I talk about you know uh, how to how to be a happy person, how to live the good life. Part of it you can't control; it's dispositional. You're born with it, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of it. About 50% of it is due to you know mindsets that you can have, choices that you can make, and so uh, that book is about you know my my personal experiences and then backed up with science. And, and I do address exactly the, the question that you mentioned. There, there's a lot of research that has shown that conservatives tend to score higher on you know, happiness scales, well-being scale than do uh, liberals. And there are all sorts of explicative reasons for it. One, for example, is that, oh, conservatives tend to be more religious. Relig there's a slight, uh, you know, small correlation between religiosity and happiness. So maybe that's what's driving it. I propose actually something different, which is going to answer your question, and it's one that I discuss in, the, in my forthcoming book. So what happens to the angry leftists? There is something around the corner where we're going to reach utopia. The, the status quo sucks. We live in a uh, racist society. We need to topple the, the statues. We, we, the United States is built on slavery and racism and patriarchy. And now we need to erase it, create tabula rasa and start fresh. So existentially, the quote progressive, who's hardly progressive, is, is existentially unhappy because the current reality is one that is unbearable. I need to change it. That's, and then goes back to our earlier question, you know, the, the academics who are trying to create a more, uh, you know, uh, kumbaya world through the spread of all these idea pathogens. Whereas the conservative, the word itself implies you wish to conserve something. So existentially, that implies there is something worth conserving. There are certain foundational values that I wake up every day. And I say, you know what? Absolute freedom of speech is something fantastic. And I'm happy to live in a world where that right exists. And so my argument is literally existentially, by definition, the utopian leftist has to be a miserable hack because he's constantly looking around the corner to create a better unicornia world. Whereas the conservative says, of course there's tough challenges, but overall life is good. But what do you think? Do you, do you buy that argument? I do. I think that there's a, there's a lot to it because um, you know, you can always point to certain examples on any side, quote unquote, of, of, of anything. But uh, but it does seem that way. It seems like there's a lot of anger out there on a <laughs> predominantly on you know sides, but uh, on a certain side, um, a lot of anger that uh, can turn to to violence, uh, turn to threats. And as you said, there are a lot more online threats than there are face to face ones. Um, yeah. uh, that's just the nature of of social media and being able to hide behind a keyboard. Um, there, there are good, and, you, and, and it's interesting that you pointed out some of the benefits of social media in here, because as, yeah. as, a, as a parent in particular, uh, I'm often focused on the negatives, uh, of social media. And I, and I often go back to, Hey, after the civil war in the United States, if we had social media that could have been weaponized back then, what would yeah. the country look like today? And then I push that forward to, to the now. 
And I think, well, it is obviously being weaponized. Um, so what is that? Does that bode well for the future, even though there are positive aspects to it? And you're taking advantage of those positive aspects out there, spreading this message, spreading the word, enlightening people. Oh, how would I have met, forgive me for interrupting you, how yeah. would I have met Jack Carr? How would I have gone yesterday on Greg Gunsman? Uh, how would I have met my childhood musical hero, the lead singer of the stylistics? Oh, wow. In what, in what world does, you know, a uh, professor, evolutionary behavioral scientist, 20 years younger than his musical hero, hang out in Philadelphia with that guy. So, so, and, and in a sense, I talk about this in the, in the next book about life as a playground. So yes, there are all sorts of negative aspects to social media, but boy, if you could focus on all of the positives, I mean, how, yeah. how could our world have intersected if it weren't for that? Never. Exactly. I would have never had the pleasure of meeting you. Uh, it provides a lot of opportunity for, for everyone. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people use it for the negative, um, for whatever reason. I don't know that we, we can talk about that next time uh, when we when I hopefully have you back, talk about your next book, because I'm so excited to, to read that. I uh, can't wait for that to come out. So uh, everyone should get Parasitic Mind. They should definitely check out the next book. Check out your other works here. Follow you on Twitter. Listen to the podcast, The Sad Truth, which is which right. is out there, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and then we did talk about things being positive and solutions. So right before I, I let you go here, I just want to read uh, that part, uh, a little sure. end here. So some parting words. And you say, for decades now, a set of idea pathogens, largely stemming from universities, has relentlessly assaulted science, reason, logic, freedom of thought, freedom of speech individual liberty and individual dignity. If we want our children and grandchildren to grow up in free societies as we have done, then we have to be assured in our principles and stand ready to defend them. That's powerful. Amen. Be a honey badger. That's it, honey badger right here. It's the name of a section in the, in the book right here. Uh, so everybody, Parasitic Mind, absolutely pick this up and gift it. More importantly, buy 10 copies and gift them. And uh, thank you so much for spending this time today. I sincerely appreciate it. It's a thank true you honor. So much. I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to, to having another chat with you. Thank you so much. Sounds great. Take care. Cheers. Take care. November 11th is Veterans Day, but at Navy Federal Credit Union, every day is Veterans Day. I've been a member since 1996, right after boot camp and right before I went to BUDS or SEAL training. Navy Federal Credit Union is for active duty veteran DOD employees and their families. They offer resources like the VA Loans Hub and Best Cities After Service. They offer veteran employment assistance partnerships with nonprofits like The Mission Continues. They're a top VA home loan lender. They offer personal finance counseling. They offer 24-7 member service and are a growing community of over 1.8 million veterans just like you. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash veterans. Insured by NCUA, an equal housing lender. What's up, everyone? This is Jeremy, founder of Ironclad. I just wanted to thank you all for listening to an Ironclad original and helping to bring our shows to the top of the charts. In recent weeks, Reborn with Ashley Horner hit the top 30 in the Apple Podcast Fitness category, and Oil & Whiskey with The Roaster Shop hit top 20 in the automotive section. Also, Success Hotline and Mental Performance Daily have passed the 2 million download mark. And finally, Danger Close with Jack Carr is still crushing it with guests that include Chris Pratt, Tulsi Gabbard, Tokyo Vice author Jake Adelstein, Gray Man creator Mark Greeny, and more. Check out Ironclad Shows wherever you get your podcast. 
I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash Danger Close and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. All right, first off, Icarus Precision. They make uh, modules for pistols, and they said they were going to send me something for the new SIG P365X Macro, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, thank you guys. What a cool Instagram page they have and uh, check out their website right here. Ooh, look at that. Boom. Oh, that feels good right there. Yeah. So check out that module. I uh, can't wait to work on this. That's awesome. Icarus Precision. Thank you guys so much. Love what you're doing out there. What else? Gators. Look at this box. Bam. And then they personalized it for me on the top right there. Look at that. Too cool. It uh, says, Jack Carr, congratulations on the success of the terminal list. Uh, and if you notice, Chris Pratt wears gaiters. He wears the Magnums. His face is a little bigger uh, than mine. I wear the Raptors and have since 1998, uh, right in there anyway. So uh, they sent me this, so let's check it out. Love this little mini ammo can. Nice. Look at this. Thank you, guys. Yep. Oh, Raptors right here. And look at that. They personalized them for me. So Gators, thank you so much and for your support over the years. And uh, anybody else watching, if you watch episode three of the Terminal List series, you'll notice that Chris Pratt gets into a little firefight there. Uh, there's a Land Cruiser involved and there's an assassin who might look a little bit like me wearing Gators. So uh, awesome. Thank you, Gators. And check this out, 10th Mountain Whiskey and Spirit. I think it's uh, 10thwhiskey.com, but look at that. These guys support a ton of different veteran-focused organizations, and uh, I'm looking forward to cracking this. And 10th Mountain Division Soldiers, they helped found and manage 62 different uh, ski resorts. Incredible. Uh, what a history. But 10th Mountain Division right here, Whiskey. Thank you, guys. And Rick Hogg, Hogg Tactical. Uh, Rick was on the podcast not too long ago, and him and Kelly Defense have the firearms training notebook right here. And uh, Rick, thank you so much for the kind words in here. But uh, the firearms training notebook, 1% better every day by Rick Hogg of Warhog Tactical and Mark Kelly of Kelly Defense. So definitely give them a follow, check out what they have going on, and uh, check out the podcast we did, did together. Um, bam, right there. And then Rick also included this video here. Make ready, Warhog Tactical Concealed Carry. Awesome. That's it for today. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about GADSAD, go to his website, GADSAD, that is G-A-D-S-A-A-D.com. You can follow him on the social channels from there. Also check out his YouTube channel and podcast, The Sad Truth. 
You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merchandise. And don't forget to check out the title drop video for my upcoming novel, Only the Dead. You can check that out on the social channels and on my YouTube channel as well. Only the Dead is available for pre-order in all formats right now. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. <laughs>